Hear now God's holy word from Luke chapter 9, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your majesty and for your power and for your strength. You have shown us your mighty acts and your power in the uh, blowing of the storm and the blowing of the wind. And it's just a fraction, just a tiny fraction of the power that you possess over all creation. And yet today we pray that another rushing mighty wind would blow, that the, 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 the wind of your spirit would blow through this place and through all of your places of worship where people are gathered in your name together around the world today. And that your spirit would blow uh, these words, the words that you have inspired out to the nations, that we would call the nations to repentance. So stir up your church, O Lord, put flesh on the dry bones, strengthen us and give us courage to speak to the nations. And we pray that, that your word would go forth in this place today. Help us to hear it and receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm really thankful to be uh, back with you all today, even though it, I, I was here last Sunday. I've been around the world and back. Uh, so we were with uh, Sarah's family over the first part of the week, and I went to Presbytery. And uh, I can't wait to tell you about all the great, wonderful things we have going on in our Presbytery. I'll report on that, I'll report on that soon. Uh, but this week, uh, after worship, we are uh, leaving to go to the mountains for a few days. So we'll, we'll get our vacation uh, out of the way there, and, uh, and we'll be back uh, Friday or Saturday of this week. Some of you have traveled over this fall break. Some of you are in the middle of traveling or still planning on traveling. And whenever you take any time away, whenever you take a vacation, the vacation goes way too fast. In fact, the last day of the vacation comes quicker than you ever expected. The time goes by so quickly and the realization settles in on that last day of vacation. This is it. If it's happening, it's happening today. All the rest and all the fun and all the, all the activity, uh, we have to get it done today because Monday morning, that alarm is going to go off and I'm going to have to get back to real life. I'm going to have to go do what grown-ups do again on Monday morning. I'm going to have to leave dream world. I'm going to have to leave my special happy place and go back to where responsibility awaits. That transition from vacation world to real world responsibility can be jolting, but we all, we all have to make it. And that's the kind of transition that Peter, James, and John make when they get off of the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and get back down to the bottom of the mountain where all kinds of things break loose in the coming verses that we'll read through the end of chapter 9 today. At the top of the mountain, you remember, though, there was no conflict. 
There was no worry. Everything's going to work out. There is Jesus revealed and shining in the glory of his father and in the glory of his perfect humanity. Moses and Elijah joined the party at the top of the mountain. At the top of the mountain, there are no sick people. There are no demon-possessed people. There are no hungry people at the top of the mountain. But uh, you can't stay there, despite the fact that Peter wants to. Peter says, can't we just make some booths and hang out here for a little while? No, Peter, you, you can't do that. You have to go back down the mountain. And when they get down there, when they get to the bottom of the mountain, they are immediately presented with a demon-possessed child. And as we read the following verses, we're witnesses to the disciples' fecklessness and their failure to do anything about this child and his needs. There's competition among the 12 apostles. There's confusion about the boundary markers of their mission. They experience more rejection. They face rejection. And we find out very quickly, the bottom of the mountain is not as glorious or as fun as the top of the mountain. The top of the mountain was indeed glorious. The bottom of the mountain is hard. But remember from last week, that's what the transfiguration showed us. That even in his glory, Jesus is talking about the cross. And in both places, Jesus' power is real, both at the top and at the bottom. And so the life that he calls us to is both glorious and hard to recall what we learned last week. Also last week, uh, Patrick... Halbrook pointed me to Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration. I invite you to go look that up. In Raph- it was his last painting. Raphael painted the Transfiguration. But just as each of the gospel writers always include the story about the demon-possessed boy right after the Transfiguration, none of them leave that story out. So we have the Transfiguration, and then right immediately after that, we have the story of the demon-possessed boy. So when Raphael painted the portrait, the the big, the 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 the, the painting of the transfiguration, the depiction of the transfiguration, he has both the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain in the picture. There at the top, Jesus is revealed in his glory. And at the bottom of the mountain, people are suffering and, um, and, and despairing over the situation with the child. So now in Luke's gospel, it is time to come down off the mountain and face reality to get back to work. And the minute they return, they're met with a multitude, Luke tells us. Suddenly a man separates himself out from the crowd, crying out, petitioning Jesus on behalf of his only child. How often have we seen that phrase so far in Luke's gospel? The only child that needs healing or resurrection. Remember the dead man that Jesus raised up at the city gates. He was the only son of his mother. Jairus's daughter, whom Jesus raised as well, was their only child. There's a reference here in Luke also we've read to Elijah ministering to the widow and her only child. This only child theme keeps popping up in Luke. Now, of course, when your only child is sick or your only child is afflicted, the stakes are raised. The stakes are higher. If you lose your only child, you lose your future. There's no one to pass your inheritance onto, and all your life's work will have to go to another relative. So there's a great deal of tension when you're talking about losing your only child on a practical sense. But there's also throughout the scriptures this theme of a childless couple being blessed with an only child. 
Childbearing for the patriarchs apparently is hard work uh, for the patriarchs and their wives. Besides Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons with how many women? We always think two. It's four, right? He had 12 sons with uh, four women and one daughter that we know of. Jacob has 12, but other than Jacob, the godly only have one or two ordinarily. God frequently gives elderly people one child throughout the scriptures. Samson's parents, John the Baptist's parents. Uh, remember Hannah praying for a child. When God promised Abraham more descendants than the stars in the sky, that was a rock solid promise, but it takes a long time to get there. It takes a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. And so through much of Israel's history, we have this thin little family tree, this thin little line, the future of the, the, the faithful seed, the future of the seed of the woman rests on a knife's edge throughout most of the scriptures. So now throughout the gospels, Jesus presents himself as the preserver of that faithful line. He takes your only child and he gives you back your only child. Your child is born, but he's sick. He needs something more than what you can give him. Your child needs everything that Jesus is. Your child needs his life. So in each of these cases, Jesus takes the child. He blesses or resurrects or heals the child. And he gives the child back to his parents, much like we do at the waters of baptism. You bring your child because they need something that Jesus has. They need his life. They need to be united to him. And so we take the child, join them to Jesus, and give them back and say, now you go, you go raise them. And that's just what Jesus does here. There's this graphic description of the boy's condition. He's demon-possessed. An evil spirit seizes him, causes him to cry out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth, and his father says, whenever the demon leaves him, it leaves him in a, in a painful condition. It bruises him on the way out. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of this father. How helpless and desperate of situation this must have been. How, how, how utterly without uh, help uh, must, must he feel? Now, now, How much more exasperated is he when he goes to the disciples and they can't help him? Now, you know who the disciples are, right? Back at the beginning of chapter 9, he gave them power over all demons. He gave them authority over some demons. No, he gave them authority over all the demons. And now this man brings the boy to the disciples and they can't do anything about it. In Matthew's gospel, there's a little bit more explanation that Jesus gives about this is the kind of demon that requires much more prayer and fasting. That's in Matthew's gospel. In Luke's gospel here, all we have is the sharp rebuke. In fact, Jesus says, you're no better than those physicians who couldn't help the woman with the issue of blood. You're you're just as bad as uh, useful as they are. He calls them a crooked and perverse generation. That's the exact same phrase that Moses used of Israel back in Deuteronomy. That, That they were crooked, they were perverse, they were faithless, they were petulant and flighty and as unstable as the wilderness generation is what Jesus is saying. They're not ready to take on the work that Jesus needs to leave to them. Not yet. 
Not yet, at least. They're not ready to take on the work. So Jesus says to the man, bring your son here. And the boy comes. And the demon takes this one last opportunity to show out. The demon throws the boy down and convulses him. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. He heals the child. And he gives the boy back to his father. And when Jesus heals him, we read this. Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. That there's no sharp line between uh, his, his physical healing. There's no line of demarcation between how much of his problem was physical and how much of it was demonic. Uh, how much of it was disease and how much of it was the demon. The child needs both the cleansing of the evil spirit and the healing of his body, and Jesus gives him everything he needs. So that uh, we, we often think that we're these, you know, separated creatures where we've got a physical part, and we've got a mental part, and we've got a spiritual part, and I, my, my body's fine, and my mind is fine, but my spirit is suffering. That's not the way it works, is it? Ever. No, we're, we're integrated completely. So that if you are sick in your body, you need to uh, uh, keep... Uh, watch that, that you don't despair, that you don't lose heart, that you're, you, you don't uh, let your spirit be crushed by the pain of your body. We're, we're integrated in such a way that it's not like one part of us can suffer and the rest of us is, is okay. Uh, Jesus, when he heals this boy, he heals them body, soul, and mind all together because we are these integrated uh, creatures. Every dimension of us needs healing using every means that God makes available to us. And that's what he provides for this boy. Well, after Jesus heals the boy, everyone is amazed. And so we read their response. Uh, We read this last week, but let me read it again in context. Hear it again now, beginning verse 43. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, in spite of this continual amazing power that they witness day after day, Jesus's greatest glory, he says here in so many words, his greatest glory is going to come when he lays down all of that power and submits himself to the cruelty of the Romans and the, and, and the Sanhedrin. And, and he submits himself to the power of Herod and the angry mob. When he lays down his life on the cross and he, he gives himself up, that will be the greatest display of his glory. That refusal to use his power to save himself is going to be his greatest work. And so he keeps bringing this up, and yet nobody can quite figure out what he's talking about. The, the toughest part for me to accept here is that his men didn't understand what he was saying, and Luke tells us they didn't ask any questions. <laughs> was he unapproachable? Did they think that uh, that was a dumb question? Lord, what, what do you mean? Did they think that he would rebuke them for asking? That doesn't make sense to me. He obviously loves these men and would love to answer their questions. But instead of asking him and learning more, they develop their own conclusions about what's going to happen. And in the process of coming to their own conclusions, they uh, have a little ugly dispute erupt among them. Verse 46, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. 
And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, uh, whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all will be great. It's funny. Anytime a project gets started, anytime, anytime people get together to work on something or start something new, it very quickly becomes apparent that people have their own ambitions. They have their own secondary agendas. They have their own visions that they bring to the effort. And it, and it, requires a considerable amount of work to get everyone to lay down their private initiatives and get on board with the central mission you all have set out to achieve together. Someone has to put their foot down. Somebody has to draw a line and direct the way. Here, apparently, the apostles are all confused about where they're going and what they're doing. They have this idea that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to display all of this power that he's shown them. The power over the wind, the power over the sea, the power over death, the power over demons. When we get to Jerusalem, there's going to be an amazing climax of power in this display of his might and majesty. And when he does that, he's going to take over Jerusalem and maybe the world. Now, when he does that, who's going to be his secretary of state? Who's going to be his vice regent? Who's going to be, who's going to be his secretary of war? And so they start to fuss over who's going to be greatest in the new kingdom. Who's going to be at his right hand? Who's going to be on the cabinet? Now, Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus overheard them speaking. Now, I'm sure that they kept all that stuff out of earshot. If they're not close enough to him to ask him questions about what he meant, when they talk about this stuff, they're not, they're not doing this within earshot of the Lord Jesus. But Luke tells us he perceives the thoughts of their hearts. He knows what's going on in their heads. And so he deals with this in an oblique way, in an oblique way. He doesn't directly address it. He takes a little child and he sets him down and he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now we think that's really sweet and precious that Jesus would sit a child down and talk about him that way. But we all come from a culture where we value children way more than they were valued in the ancient world. Even, even heathens today want the best for their children. They uh, worship their children. They demand that their children have all kinds of opportunity and attention. In this world, you love your children, as is evident in all these people who want their children healed. But but you, you, you don't, no one would want to be a child. No one, no one looks at a child and thinks that there anything, uh, uh, there's any admirable qualities there that, that we would want to model. And yet Jesus says, this child represents those who are greatest in my kingdom. If you want to be great, don't, don't claw and bite and fight for honor and recognition and status. No, you need to be like a child. This unassuming, this humble child, not leaning on your own resources, but admit that you are small, you are weak, you are helpless. And then Jesus takes a step further and says, if you honor children in their weakness, and if you honor them in their dependence upon you and upon the Lord, that is to honor Jesus. And to honor Jesus is to honor the one who sent him the father. So, so what he's doing here is he's taking all of their assumptions as they fight and claw and bicker and fuss 
over who's going to be greatest, he inverts everything. He turns it upside down and says, no, you've got it all wrong. Why would you want to be, why would you want to be secretary of war? Why would you want to be secretary of state? Why would you even want to be king? I want you to be like this child. I want you to start there. Out right after this, there's another conflict over who's allowed to cast out demons. Verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Notice here it's John who raises this protest. You know, we would think maybe it would be Judas or Thomas or, you know, one of the other guys. Not John one who was in the room when he raised the little girl, not John who was at the top of the mountain uh, of transfiguration. And yet we're going to see Peter, James, and John, the three that Jesus handpicks to be his closest uh, to him, they're not above short-sightedness and ignorance. Now it's John here complaining that someone is casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, Lord, I just want you to know, I saw somebody out there uh, casting out demons in your name, and I forbade him. I said, you may not do this. And he expects Jesus to pat him on the head and say, well, John, boy, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to go out there correcting everybody else who's not doing what you think they ought to be doing uh, in my name. Well, first of all, how embarrassing was this to them that this man who was casting out demons, whoever he was, is able to cast out demons and they were just unable to do so? How embarrassing is that? <laughs> this other guy's not even with us and he can do it. What's going on here? Secondly, notice that John doesn't say, this man does not follow Jesus. No, what does he say? The problem is, according to John, he's not following with us. He's not one of our guys. That's what he's saying. So whatever neat categories they had ironed out for themselves, for who was allowed to serve Jesus and whose work was blessed by Jesus, that's all thrown out of whack for them now. And it's thrown out of whack by Jesus. Jesus is the one who upsets the turnip cart. He says, do not forbid him, for he who isn't against us is on our side. I have to confess and admit to you that that's really hard for me to hear. I I have to work at processing and understanding that in our context today because I tend to operate with the assumption that only those who have their theology buttoned up like we do, obviously, right? Only those who have their theology squared away are really pleasing to God and everybody else is just kind of struggling. But the Lord apparently has a different set of criteria for who he blesses and who he uses. And he is not bound to my criteria, in this age of church history, he has his people spread out through all branches of the church with many different streams of theology, worship practices, conventions, and traditions. And so what, what we are able to do then is to look at this broad spectrum of the body of Christ and say, well, that's helpful, that's good, that's interesting. Maybe we could learn something there. Wow, they really do that better than we do. We could really do better there. But we must not perpetuate this sectarian spirit that John brings up, this attitude that Jesus reprimands. You see, I think John is telling, Jesus, they don't follow with us. He doesn't say they're not following you. In fact, they're casting out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, leave them alone. 
there have always been believers showing up in interesting places outside of the main story of what God is doing with his people. God does his work with a main body of people throughout the scriptures, but then you have these other people show up from other places. You think, where did you come from? Melchizedek. What's going on there? How, where does he come from? Where does he go when he's done? He obviously loves the Lord God, and yet uh, he's not part of the main body of the family that God is working with. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and he has some wise things to say uh, to Moses. Caleb, remember, Caleb wasn't an Israelite. Caleb was a Kenizzite. Hiram, king of Tyre, supports and loves David and Solomon. The point is, you can think of many others, God's grace spills out over this big, wide world. The sower casts his seed in all, all kinds of places. And so that, that seed that's cast all over the world is going to bear fruit in some unexpected places. Oh, unexpected to us, not unexpected to God. And so here's one of those examples is the seed has been sown. The seed has been broadcast everywhere and fruit is popping up over here. And John's saying, are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed to bear fruit over there? Can they do that? I mean, they're not with us. And Jesus says, you leave him alone. It's at this point when Jesus determines to leave Galilee where he's been ministering up, up near the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee. And he begins his march toward Jerusalem to begin his work there. And from here to the end of the gospel for Jesus, Jerusalem is the goal. Jesus has his face set toward the city and the cross that waits for him there in the city. So let's pick it up at, at verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not want to receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. <clears throat> By the way, I'm covering this long section here and I've only got one more section to read. So if you wonder, is he, is he going to read the rest of Luke today? No, I'm not going to read the rest of Luke today. But I, uh, I, I'm trying to cover this section because it all, it all it falls like dominoes, one thing after another. And you see the same tensions in each one of these little stories. So, so Luke writes, when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, what is he talking about? This, of course, refers to Jesus's ascension. But with all of these Elijah callbacks that we've seen over the last several weeks, it reminds us of the way that Elijah ascended. Elijah was taken up by a fiery chariot. And how when Elijah was taken up, he left Elisha behind with the anointing to continue the work. Now, Luke is the one who's going to tell us about the rest of the work of the Holy Spirit through the church as, uh, as the church continues after Jesus is received up. And so uh, it's interesting that Luke has this Elijah motif that Jesus is going to be uh, caught away. Jesus is going to be, uh, to, to, to be uh, he's going to ascend to the clouds and then, and then the church is going to continue just like Elijah was, just like Elisha continued. And so there's this reference here. Nevertheless, here we see already 
The cross is not the end of the story. Uh, Luke is pointing toward the ascension. So Jesus, we read, sent his messengers before his face on the way to Jerusalem. Now, that word messengers also means angels. Uh, Angels are messengers, and the word messenger in Greek is simply angel. Uh, So in addition to this being an Elijah story, remember, we're also keeping track with the Moses story. Last week, we saw Jesus talk about his exodus. And so just as God sent his angel before the people of Israel to guide them into the land, so Jesus sends his angels before him to prepare the way. He sends his messengers up ahead in this exodus story. Of course, there's also a practical reason for doing this, not just a uh, a biblical, theological, symbolic reason for doing it. You send your messengers before you so they can scope out places to stay. Friendly people. Let's find friendly people who can help us or invite us in. Remember, when Jesus sent out his apostles, he said, go to these various places. And if someone will receive you, stay there and stay in that place until it's time to leave town. Well, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for places to stay. And when these messengers head through Samaritan territory, they don't find any hospitality. Ordinarily, Jews traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem would go all the way around Samaria. They would go out of their way to get down to Jerusalem. They wouldn't travel through Samaritan territory. Remember, Samaritans were this people that had some Jewish lineage. They had some Jewish heritage, but they had all been mixed up in the Assyrian captivity and the subsequent uh, captivities and, and uh, hardships there. And so they lost their connections to the family of Israel. That was all erased. So by this time in history, the Samaritans have developed a different religion. Uh, they, they rejected Jerusalem. They rejected the temple. Uh, they were hostile to the Jews and the Jews were hostile to them. The bad feelings were mutual between the Jews and the Samaritans. It wasn't unheard of for Jews who actually made the mistake of going through Samaria. It wasn't unheard of for them to be robbed or beaten or killed on their way through, which is an interesting color to the uh, Good Samaritan story that we're about to read in a couple of weeks. Uh, At any rate, because of their hostility toward the Jews and because of their severe distaste for Jesus and his mission, these Samaritans here don't offer any hospitality to Jesus and the apostles. They don't extend the warm hand of fellowship. Now, James and John speak up. First, it was John who spoke up, uh, the last little story. But now John, uh, John and James speak up. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And they wouldn't give us a place to sleep. They wouldn't give us anything to eat. I think we need to nuke them. Can we just nuke them, Lord? Uh, So one of the stories we're following here, of course, is the Elijah story. And Elijah called fire down on some people of Samaria once upon a time. But those were representatives of the wicked, idolatrous king Ahaziah, who repeatedly failed to recognize the God of Israel. That's why Elijah called fire down on those men in that day, because they were wicked, idolatrous, high-handed rebels against the God of creation. These here, these Samaritans, are just disinterested. They're just being unfriendly. They're just being inhospitable. That's not quite the same thing as high-handed idolatry. And so Jesus told them before, what did he say? He said, if someone doesn't receive you, what do you do? Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. 
Remember he said that? He didn't say, if someone doesn't receive you, call fire and brimstone down on them. He doesn't say that. And so Jesus rebukes his men again. And he says, you don't know. You you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. They're acting this whole time as if they're drunk with power. And they have this itchy trigger finger when it comes to displaying the terrible might and strength they believe they have with Jesus. So if somebody's not with us, zap them. If somebody doesn't offer us hospitality, uh, rain down hail, fire, and brimstone on them. They have this infighting, this sectarian bickering, this hateful outburst. And Jesus says, guys, guys, listen. You you don't get it. I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Yeah, there are similarities to Elijah's ministry, but there are also contrasts. There are types and there are anti-types. And he he reminds them, yeah, I'm, I'm the greater Elijah. Don't forget that. So they go on to another village, just as Jesus told them to when he said, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't give you any hospitality, if they don't show you hospitality, go on to the next town. Now, let me wrap this up here with this uh, last section of the chapter. Verse 57, we'll, we'll finish the chapter here. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Um, This is mostly uh, not a great movie, but remember in Forrest Gump when he's running across the country and, okay, no, no, none of you watch movies, I know, so you don't, you don't know what scene I'm talking about. This guy, he's running across the country, and as he's running across the country, people start joining him, right? And as long as they can keep up, as long as they can run with him, uh, he's, he, he collects this big multitude of people that are running with him. Why are you running? I don't know. I just felt like running. And he starts running back and forth across the country until he's tired. But at the end, he has this this multitude and people keep joining him. So picture that. Jesus is on a double time march south to Jerusalem. He's on a tight schedule. And if you want to go with him, you're going to have to be ready to put up with some deprivations. You're going to have to leave your old life behind. And you're going to have to follow him now. You can't go back home. You have to get on the road now and leave your old life behind. And so these people come up to Jesus along the way, but they sound a lot like the rocky soil in the parable of the sower, or or they they sound like the thorny soil. They want to follow, but they have conditions attached. The first one says, Lord, I will follow you wherever. But Jesus knows that this person may not be willing to leave their comfortable life behind. So he paints a picture of the hard road ahead. And we don't hear from that person again. Jesus says to another, come on, follow me. But the man says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. For a Jewish man, burying your parents was one of your most holy and binding duties. One of the most binding and holy duties you would have in your entire life. In fact, there were two burials. One, when the body was placed in the sealed tomb. And then a second burial was done 12 months later when the bones were placed in a bone box. This was a long process. But if you're going to come with Jesus, 
Now you're going to have to leave that to other people. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Let those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, let them deal with death. You go with me, Jesus says, and preach the kingdom. Yes, burying your parents is an important responsibility. And ordinarily, we ought to attend to these things. But there's no higher responsibility than following Jesus. And so if it comes down to your loyalty to your parents or your loyalty to Jesus, you always pick Jesus. No matter what the allegiance is, no matter what the loyalty is, when it comes down to that or Jesus, you pick Jesus. What is, what is the commitment? My commitment to this or my commitment to Jesus? Well, it's my commitment to Jesus. It trumps everything. And that's what Jesus is showing him in this extreme example. Ordinarily, yes, you, you take care of your parents' funeral arrangements, obviously. But here, when it comes down to it, follow Jesus. And then another says, Lord, I will follow you, but I need to go home and tell everybody goodbye first. And Jesus says, no, that's not going to work. That's going backwards. We're going forward. We're going on to Jerusalem. He says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you know what happens to a row if you're plowing and you look backwards? <laughs> you, you turn. Um, if you've ever run a tiller and you want to see if the line is good, it might have been good, but it's not anymore. Because you just turned. It's same with a mower. You know, you're mowing. He said, boy, that's, that looks really nice. And you, you, turn the, you turn the thing. Jesus said, don't look back. Because if you look back, uh, you, you'll be drawn back to that life. Just as Paul writes in Philippians, forgetting the things behind, reaching forward to the things ahead. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, if you're going to come with me, you have to come now. You aren't going to get a second chance. I need you to make up your mind. I don't have time for delayed obedience. Come now. Now, what's interesting is that each of these three people call him Lord. That's how they address Jesus. They call him Lord. But they all apparently have something else in the way of his complete lordship over their lives. For each of them, their level of obedience is going to have to come up to match their level of confession. They confess that he's Lord, but their obedience has to match that confession. If he really is Lord, then you're going to have to submit to him. You're going to have to trust him, leave and follow. Even if that means breaking some social conventions, even if that means offending people who just don't know better and don't understand what you're doing, even if it means that you aren't going to fit in, that may be one of the biggest idols of our day, fitting in. And it doesn't matter what age you are, you feel the gravitational pull of fitting in, being normal, doing what normal people do. Just be normal, just be respectable, and that's all you're called to do. But what this whole long process, this whole long section teaches us is that submission to the Lord Jesus requires a reorganization and a reprioritization of our allegiances and our expectations. What sin has turned upside down and inside out, what sin has perverted, Jesus is setting right. So if you want to be great, you got to be like this child. Don't draw divisions between yourselves, he says, fighting and clawing for acclaim and attention. Don't be hateful toward outsiders. Don't be sectarian toward people who have a different story from you. If the Lord is obviously blessing their work and they're doing it in his name, mind your own business. Don't erect new barriers where Jesus hasn't put any. 
and someone doesn't treat you kindly, if they don't extend you hospitality, don't act like a tribal warlord and vow to take vengeance. Go on to the next town. You see, you put all this together, and you see that what we're being called to do is to put away everything that stands between us and absolute allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be comfort, whether it be family, whether it be other people's expectations, kill it, put it behind you and walk in this way that's going to look upside down to the world because the world is upside down and because you're walking upright. You're going to not fit in. You're not going to look normal. But that's precisely what Jesus is calling you to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and we thank you for all of the works of our Lord Jesus. We thank you and ask that just as you said through your son, just as he told his apostles, let these words sink down into your ears. So we pray today that these words would indeed sink down into our ears. Help us to meditate on the things we've read and studied together this morning. Cause them to marinate in our hearts and minds and help us to apply them throughout the week ahead. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.